Outdoor Adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it product availability just one part that makes o'reilly stand apart the professional parts people oh 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 o'reilly auto parts elk calling world champions yeah, they can call, but can they hunt? Today's guest is a 2021 RMEF world champion and 2022 runner-up, but that isn't why I have him on the show today. He's a great, great elk hunter. He's very accomplished and skilled. Tony Gilberton out of Vernonia, Oregon. Welcome to the show, Tony. Hey, thanks, Jason. I appreciate this opportunity. Yeah, how's everything uh, going down there in Oregon? So far, it's not too hot. I know you're on the, the coast, um, but how's everything down there? I was doing good. Uh, it's It's been hot, but in Vernonia, it's, I mean, we're in the foothills of the coast range, so it, it stays a little bit cooler, and it, it cools down more at night, so we just open up the windows at night, and we're good to go. But no, it's all is good. I'm, I'm ready for fall. Yeah, yeah, aren't we all? It's closing in quick, and uh, you have any big hunts lined up for this fall? So with Oregon changing uh, a lot of the units that we hunted over in Eastern Oregon to control only, um, you know, I can hunt Roosevelt's. I can be in the woods from my house in about, you know, 10 or 15 minutes. And I can hunt every day after work if I want to and on the weekends and, and then usually take a week off. So I'm just going to hunt the general season OTC tag for uh Saddle Mountain unit and Scapoose unit, and then uh, I was fortunate enough to get a uh, a tag in Idaho, so I'm looking forward to that. Nice, nice. You can take a week off and go over to Idaho then. Yeah, I'll hunt. I'll hunt uh, the whole the whole season here in Oregon, and then probably the last five or six days I'll take off and head over to Idaho. Nice, nice. Congrats yeah. on that tag. And um, nice. Idaho seems to be getting tougher and tougher every year. Where um, you know, it used to be what just four or five years ago you could go to the gas station during archery season, and there were all kinds of B tags left. And um, now, if you don't get a low enough number, or uh, you know, lucky enough on December first, you're not getting any sort of tag there. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah you, I, you're looking I was, at Idaho. I was disappointed. My son and I both got online there, and and I mean, it was like eight hundred and sixty-two, and he was six six thousand and some odd. So. I was fortunate enough to get the tag and he wasn't. And honestly, I would have rather seen him get the tag than myself, but it just didn't work out that way. So maybe next year. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to jump into some listener questions. And if you have a question um, you want us to answer or one of our guests to answer, send it to us at CTD at PhelpsGameCalls.com. We'll do our best to get, get your questions answered. Um, you know, send us a message, whatever it needs to be. But I kind of cherry picked this one for you, Tony. Uh, how good of a caller do you need to be to call an elk, in, in your opinion? <laughs> in my opinion, uh, you know, a lot of guys stress out about that. I've, I've coached a, a number of people that, honestly, they're, they're a bit shy or, um, 
you know, scared to, to show, show me what they can do. And, and I, I try to encourage them because in my opinion, you, you don't have to be a world professional caller to call elk. Uh, I, I've heard, I've heard some elk in the woods that, that you would swear sounded like a human, uh, or they sounded horrible. And it turns out that they're bulls. Uh, you know, I've got a good friend of mine that, that, uh, you know, isn't the, isn't the most accomplished caller in the world, but, you know, he calls in bulls all the time. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's as necessary to be as good a caller as it is to be maybe more versatile in terms of the different sounds you can make. Yeah, I'm right there with you. You know, you don't have to be as good as you, Dirt, Jermaine, you know, myself. And I think, you know, we may be doing a disservice to them, you know, because we we make all this hunting content and we share educational videos and they get to hear, you know, some of the sounds that you guys can make and, and the quality of sounds that you guys can make. And I th- I think, you know, as you said, they get a little timid, they get a little bit nervous that they can't make sounds like that or is accurate yeah. of sounds like that. And then they become very timid in, in the elk woods. And, and to kind of piggyback on your answer, I think it's much more important to, to get the rest of the strategy right as far as, you know, locating elk, getting the wind right, getting close. And then at the end, you ultimately need to have the confidence to make a call um, versus, you know, I'm just going to get close and I'm going to kind of hang out and just see what happens. You know, that's, that's never a good approach. Um, you know, it may work. Um, spot and stock may work. You know, we know a lot of successful guys that and gals that don't necessarily pick up a call. They, they do it a different way. But if you're going out there with the intent to, to you know, run a call and, and call a bull into your lap, um, I think you need to have some confidence. And that's why, you know, some of the things like, you know, some of the calls that we've been designing lately, such as the, the Easy Sucker and the Easy Bugler, it's not because me or you or Dirk or, you know, experienced callers that have dedicated, you know, most of their lives into, you know, or, or a yeah. large, you know, a large time frame within their life and not the majority of their life. But, you know, we've dedicated a lot of time to becoming very proficient. And I honestly believe that, you know, making these calls easier for people to use is going to give them that confidence. And, and we got a lot of feedback last year that just the easy bugler, like gave them the confidence to actually go into the same areas in the same situations that they've been in, in the past and, and to actually blow on the call and to get responses and to get action and to play the game. Like in my opinion was meant to be played. So that's some of the reasons, you know, why we're running that. And uh, I honestly truly believe that somebody that can at least sound somewhat decent is better to have those people running around in the woods that people that are, are blowing on a call that sound not good at all or you know don't even resemble an elk and so in my opinion it's it's not doing you know much more harm than it is you know elk sound like elk and so um by allowing them to 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 sound better it's actually helping all of us yeah no i agree with that jason i i was talking to a guy i was at a birthday party over the weekend and in doofer and i was talking to a guy there that uh, he struggles with with having a diaphragm in his mouth just because of his gag reflex. And I was talking to him about the Easy Bugler, and I said, you know, there's, there's options out there for you now. You don't have to know how to use a diaphragm. Uh, you know, these cow calls that, that, um, that Phelps and others are developing right now are, are uh, much easier than what they, you know, to use and what they used to be. And if, if you can't use a diaphragm, uh, you know, the, the Easy Bugler is a, a fantastic option and it sounds awesome so uh he was he was going to look into that because of that that very reason and and he didn't have confidence i don't think in himself just in talking to him uh but it's just a matter of picking up the calls and and just you know practicing and and you don't like i said you don't have to be a world champion elk caller but you do need to dedicate some time to to at least sound somewhat realistic and get to the point where you can, you know, you, you don't you don't sound the same every time that you can throw some versatility in there and make the bulls or, or the, yeah, make the bulls sound like or, or hear you in a way that that suggests you're another elk. Yep. And, you know, there have been some situations where. I don't ever want to be called in by somebody else or somebody else to feel like, you know, if they recognize us or see us. So um, there's been some situations in the last few years where I'm about ready to bounce out of our calling setup. You know, we've got set up, we're doing everything we think. And we're like, you know, you're, you're, we're trying to listen and, and figure out like, is that a real elk? Is that a person? Um, and, and multiple times over the last five years, I would say, you know, four or five different 
approaches that I, I can remember fairly, fairly well. We ended up calling an elk that I would have at some point during that call in guessed that they were a person, you know? And so I don't think, you know, quality of calls, it's more of, you know, the ability, the confidence to use them, um, and then making the sounds at the right time, um, are, are more important. So I think we're, we're both on the same page, you know, being a great caller isn't a requirement. Um, it does no. help us a little bit. Uh, one of the strategies we like to use is mimicry, uh, and, and being a good caller gives us the ability to like, I, I think I know how to make that sound, you know, cause, cause real elk make all kinds of different sounds. And so if I'm trying to copycat that bull, it, it is nice to be able to, Oh, I, I know how to, you know, manipulate the call and, and get that sound. But, um, aside from that, you know, you, you learn a few, you know, cow mews, you know, estrus wines, challenge bugles, location bugles, um, and, and get them down. That that's all you're going to need to head, head into the elk woods and, and find success. In my opinion. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more, Jason. I think you're spot on. The second question from the listeners, um, what is your approach when trying to call in a herd bull as far, and, and I'm going to twist this a little bit or, or put some direction to that as far as what's your calling strategy? Like if you could, you know, take, bottle up your strategy, put it in a little cookie cutter approach. Um, give us, give us that answer. Yeah. Well, I, I think when you, you mentioned mimicry earlier, Jason, um, you know, I, you know, my approach when it comes to, to herd bulls, I mean, number one, you've got the problem with, with calling satellite bulls or spikes or something like that. Uh, you know, to where those bulls come in and then you, you know, you got to kind of, at least in my opinion, kind of tone it down a bit or shut up until they kind of move off so you don't so you don't spook them and they bump the herd and you know off they go but uh you know i think for me i think the most important thing is is to get in close and and just get aggressive with them you know if th- that herd bull is a herd bull for a reason and if you if you're really shy and timid with that bull and and you keep a distance from him he's he's not going to pay you any attention at all so until you get up close enough to where that bull thinks you're a threat and you can actually you know make some sounds that that gives him the impression that that you know you're moving in on his herd and you're you know there's a chance you're going to take his cows from him you're not going to have much success so in my opinion you know locating that herd getting in close trying to mimic what he's what he's saying uh, you know, sometimes I'll get in there close and, and, and do some, do some raking. And a lot of times that'll be enough to just, you know, push him over the edge and, and have him come in. But getting in there, throwing out a challenge bugle, uh, maybe a bull's calling cow's bugle, something that, that gives him the impression that, that you're a threat is, is, is probably your best option. Yeah. I'm all, I'm on the same page with you there as well, Tony. Um, yeah, I always use the analogy. I think I've already used it on the podcast, but it's always worth kind of, you know, painting the picture again. You know, I always try to try to picture like if you were sitting at the back of a restaurant with your wife having a, you know, a nice dinner, whatever it may be, and somebody walks in the front door and and yells at you like, "Hey, mister, I'm going to whip your butt. I'm coming to take your wife." You know, cuz that's basically what we're doing out in the Oak Woods. You would be you would have the ability to take your wife and maybe go out the back door, you know, defend, you know, whatever you need to do, you know, mm-hmm. try to avoid the situation. Right. But if that same person or elk doesn't say anything to you until you, you know, gets right to the edge of your table, they've now taken away that like fight or flight opportunity. You've, you've now got like fight to deal with. Right. That's all right. all you have left. And so, yeah, very aggressive. Get very, very close. Um, one thing. I've always noticed, uh, you know, the majority of herd bulls, some of them come in all sorts of pissed off after you get close, get tight, you know, do some challenge beagles, um, whatever it may be. Um, you know, there are some that are just like, Oh, that was easy. It shouldn't have been that easy, but there are ones that are, you know, they won't beagle, you know, right after your beagle, they'll maybe beagle 10 seconds later. And it just kind of frustrates me because it's like, well, Hey, why, you know, answer me. I just made a beagle. You obviously could hear me, but you're kind of just ignoring me. You're, you're doing your own thing. And on those sorts of bowls, I always believe that I can go in and turn the temperature up on that bowl. He's kind of lazy. He's kind of lackadaisical on his bugling. He doesn't really seem to care that I'm in the area. And, and I typically, my mind kind of starts to, to put that bowl in the category of probably an older bowl. You know, he, he's not yeah. responding to everything. He's not, he doesn't have a care in the world. He doesn't care if I walk into his herd because he's going to whip my butt when I get there, you know, so he, he's a little, a, a little more 
laxed in his responses. And those are those elk that, you know, those bulls, I want to get in close and I want to slowly turn the temperature up, like just annoy him. I want to pester him. And I want to, that's kind of what's going through my head that if we play this game of pestering him enough that we can eventually turn the temperature up and, you know, hopefully call him away from his herd. Um, It's just very, very tough. We're reversing nature here. Uh, You know, a a bull doesn't want to leave his cows, his harem, whether it's two or three cows or whether it's 10 or 15, he's got his for sure thing. And we're trying to reverse nature by, you know, he beagles for, you know, and, and his beagles are loud for a reason. Like that's to announce to the cows, like, Hey, I'm over here. Come join us versus us trying to reverse that and say, Hey, we're one lonely cow over here. Leave your other 15 cows. Or we're, we're one bull over here. Leave your 15 cows to come check us out. Like that's, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, so yeah, get close, you know, get aggressive, um, and, and try to turn the heat up on that bull is, is kind of what's going through my head is when I know it's a herd bull. Yeah, no, I, I agree that those bulls that have a lot of confidence, like, like you said, that, that just like, just like in a, you know, human nature, you, you get some guy that, that, that's confident in his abilities and, and, you know, he's going to kick your butt. Like, like you said, you know, what's, what's the reason? What, why, why should he go and, and fight you? Why not make you come to him and actually have him get a visual of you? Or at least in, that's, I mean, that's going through his mind, right? He's going to stay here with his yep. cows until he sees, sees you and, and, and can acknowledge that you're a threat. Um, but, you know, I've, I've taken one thing that has worked for me in the past, too, is, you know, you get those bulls that, that just, you know, they're kind of antagonistic and they just, they, you know, they'll, they'll bugle back at you, but, but they kind of stay off in the distance just around their cows. And I've taken off and, and, and just ran at them. And, and just, you know, screaming my head off at him, thinking that, okay, here he comes, you know. And, and sometimes just the sound of you running through the brush at that bull. Now, you know, on the coast here, <laughs> it's, it's probably more obvious that you're, you know, you're running through all that stuff trying to get to him. But, and, and, and they can't see you coming, so maybe it's a little easier that way than it is in some of the open country. But, you know, that's a, that's a technique that I've used before, too, that, that's, that's been effective. Yeah. Yeah. When you close that distance faster than they expect, it kind of puts them on tilt and um, can, can work, work really well there. So if any of you, once again, have any of your own questions you want us to try to answer or tackle or or give our own spin, uh, make sure to email us at ctd at phelpsgamecalls.com and we'll do our best to, to give you an answer. Now we're going to kind of jump in to the, the discussion here for today. And uh, I, I promise I didn't pick you, Tony, to go over this, but you know, these <laughs> topics, but what we're going to talk about today is a lot of the mistakes that we've made over time. Uh, we've mentioned it before. We kind of came from, you know, the times where there wasn't, you know, multiple elk hunting courses or elk hunting information on the internet. Um, there weren't even forums and stuff. Like I, I, I got on the internet to, you know, check my emails back when, when I started to learn to elk hunt. And, um, you know, so we, we learned a lot on our own and, and a lot of that came from trial and error. So today I'm just going to kind of go through, you know, some of the major mistakes we made early on or some of the same mistakes that we made over and over. And we were talking a little bit before the podcast, um, some of the mistakes that we're still making that, um, you know, for one reason or another, we, we think one way or something happened one way in the past and um, we, we make a mistake and it doesn't turn out in our favor. So we're going to kind of go through some of that, um, walk through mistakes we've made and, and kind of see, you know, how you've learned from that. And, and the other thing I want to I want to preface this whole conversation a little bit, Tony, with it is elk hunting. We're doing our best to try to put you know, our experience together, but I am humbled every year that what has happened in the past, what's happened, you know, multiple times in the past, then, you know, the next 20 setups or call-ins, it may fail. And so even when I don't want to call these low odds, you know, or, or everything we do has low odds, but there's always the risk that these are wild animals. It's not always going to work like it did last time or the time before or shoot even 10 times ago. Um, you know, you got to try to read the situation, make your best judgment call and go with it. Um, and so yeah. we're, we're going to give some information here, but, but I want to, you know, preface it with, it's not going to work, you know, fail proof every time we're always going to screw up. Yeah. Elk are unpredictable. If they were predictable, this would be easy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If they, if they couldn't smell, if they were blind and if they did the same thing every day, we'd be all right. 
Yeah, right. I'd be a lot more successful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, we're going to talk about um, some of the knowledge we've gained through the mistakes we've made over the years. And uh, I would, as I mentioned, some of the repeat mistakes uh, I personally have made over the years. So we're going to start off with scouting. Um, I used to do a whole lot more scouting um, than I do now. But some of the mistakes, you know, we we made scouting. Go ahead and give some of your, you know, scouting mistakes and I'll kind of follow that up with some of the stuff that, you know, I did really, really wrong. And, and some of the stuff I do now that I think is, it, you know, makes a lot more sense now that I think about it. Yeah, I, I think, well, I mean, I don't know if this is a mistake or it's just a, a matter of not having enough time. But, you know, you mentioned not not doing as much or used to do a lot more scouting than what you used to now. I think. I think just being out in the woods more frequently on a regular basis, um, you know, that, that can help. But, you know, I, I do, I, I do use uh, online maps and I will, I'll get online and I'll look at areas where I think will hold elk, you know, it's a, the cover, the feed, the water, you know, bedding areas, likely, likely bedding areas. And, uh, you know, I'll get out there before the season and, you know, that, that's that's one of the problems is you go out and you scout before the season. Well, these bulls don't have cows yet. So who's to say they're going to be in that area when you get there? And then, you know, there's all this sign when you get out there and you do your preseason scouting. And I, I have fallen trapped to just because I know that the elk are always there. I get there and they've moved on and I spend, you know, kind of what we were talking about earlier. You spend too much time in an area just because the elk were there, you know, a month before the season or, you know, I've been in units before that have been very productive and, you know, maybe you think you don't have to do as much scouting and you get there and you don't see sign, but you keep hunting it because it's what you're familiar with instead of, you know, branching out and moving elsewhere. Um, you know, that, that's, that's a, a huge mistake I've made in the past. Yeah. Um, so I'm the same way. Scouting was almost a detriment to me, to my elk hunting when I was younger. And I'll, I'll kind of explain, we didn't hunt the mountains. I grew up hunting, you know, coastal Washington, clear cut country, you know, warehouser cuts every 45 years. And so we have a, uh, it's a lot different than the majority of people get to hunt. But what we would do in 2008, nine, I decided, you know, I'm going to go up in the mountains. I'm going to go up in the cascades. I'm going to go do some mountain hunting off of my back. And so we had taken three or four different scouting trips into a wilderness area. We were seeing elk every time, lots of elk. Um, and so what we did in between these scouting trips and between seasons, is I would go home and like plan my entire hunt from the computer based on what we were seeing out there. And when I got my feet on the ground, for some reason in my mind, that hunt was going to work out at some point versus if I hadn't have went and scouted and just went back into that area, I would be more fluid and I would have to go find where those elk were. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't go to where I thought the elk were going to be. And so that was one of the big, um, you know, issues with scouting and how it would kind of backfire on me is I had a plan in my head on where I was going to kill the elk and how our morning hunts would go and how our night hunts would go. And it just didn't pencil out that way. Um, the other bad habit I had, uh, you know, scouting, which is the same thing on these hunts, we would go see herds of a hundred elk, you know, in a high Alpine basin, uh, you know, the bulls would be off in a different area. We'd have bull, uh, you know, all over our camera is I would go look for elk on my scouting trips. And as you just mentioned, um, they, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be there, uh, in, in the fall when seasons open up, that doesn't mean that the bulls are going to leave and go find cows. And so one thing I would do is go look for elk, which now I tell people, don't go look for elk, go look for elk signs. And, and my favorite um, sign to go find out there is one to two-year-old rubs, you know, whether their needles are all dropped or, uh, you know, if they've got red needles on them. I, I love to see that sign and I love to see multiple years of those rubs because what that lets me just, you know, figure out without even seeing an elk is that they're rutting here year after year. I, you know, and, and it's multiple years stacked on. So there's a, you know, there are some strange areas I've got into where it's like, you know, the elk have swung in there for a year or they've swung in there for a week and, you know, but, but multiple years worth of rubs. It's like, all right, this is obviously an area they like to, they like to go. They like to be during the rut. Um, and then within those areas, I'm starting to look, you know, within where are the beat in trails around those rubs, where are the wallows and benches around those rubs? Where are they going to be able to bed in close proximity to those rubs? Cause a lot of times the rubs are in fairly close proximity to their bedding areas. Um, 
it's kind of a little different than how I used to scout, but I want to find rubs first and then find some of these other features, food, cover, the trails, the way they're getting in and out of there, you know, wallows, where are they going to get their water and kind of planning that hunt around there. And then not scouting, I'm going to go show up, uh, you know, during season and, and go locate those elk and figure them out versus, you know, putting all my eggs in the basket from, from scouting. Yeah. I, I've, I've done the same thing, Jason. I, you know, we, we've hunted areas around, around home here for years and we know that the elk are always there, but so do a lot of other people. And, you know, when they get, even before the season, you get enough guys out there scouting around, getting more human scent in the air, even some guys going out like preseason trying to, you know, cow call or bugle. And, uh, I mean, how many times if, if you're used to, if you're used to hunting on the coast over clear cuts, how many times have you seen guys pull up in a, in a pickup truck and, and bugle off a landing, you know, over a clear cut down into some timber or something you start to educate those bulls and, and they get, you know, they're not dumb animals. So I, you know, I, I've made a mistake of spending too much time where there's too much pressure instead of moving on just because I know the elk are there, but they're so hard by that time to call in. They just, they head for the deep, dark, you know, reap rod patches and stuff that's so thick that you can't get them out of there and they don't come out until after dark. So, uh, you know, I, I, I've, I've got to get to the point where, you know, you, 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 re, you recognize that sooner and then move on to a different area, hoping that you can get into some different elk that are maybe not as, have, have, haven't been quite as pressured. Yep. And, and I fall, <coughs> I fell into that same trap where, you know, we would plan our hunt. Um, you know, we would pack in food, drop it off and we would be locked into an area. And now I'm to the point where, you know, people might call me crazy and, and maybe if the bull was big enough or something that really kind of, you know, struck my fancy and I really wanted to try to harvest a bull, I might stay. But if I get to an area and, you know, the elk are there and they don't really want to play the game, we've all ran into those herds where it's just there, there's elk and I can see them and I can hear them, but they just don't want to play the game. I even yeah. pull the plug on those, those situations fairly quick. Uh, you know, similar to you, I grew up around home where the elk are in the same spots year after year. Uh, it's a little different when you, you go out of state or, you know, go south or, or go east from where we're at where, um, but, but I'm in that same boat. Like I want to go find, find an elk that's, that's, you know, reared up, rutting, you know, willing to beagle at anything. And, um, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a situation I'm looking for personally is to go find elk that are willing to play the game and play the game, you know, on my terms. Um, so yeah, that was kind of our, our second point that kind of rolled right out of scouting was, you know, when you show up, you don't find elk or you don't find elk that, that want to play the game and then not moving and, and kind of staying there. So I always recommend having multiple plans, or if you did your scouting right, you should have, you know, 10 different plans. Like in, in any situation, um, you know, if we showed up, like you said, on a landing or a road or somebody got up before you and beat you to an area, I didn't have one little bit of anxiety. I didn't fret one bit. I just pulled up to, you know, and I went to spot B, you know, God willing, hopefully there's enough light that I can get there. I'm a little nervous, but you know, some people that, that could, that could screw up their whole day. You know, I, I know hunters around here that they would just probably go home and I, that, that's not the right, there's elk out there, um, you know, that are, that are ready to be hunted. And so always have, you know, multiple backup plans, um, you know, on X maps, you know, all the mapping software that's out there. Like it, it's very easy to have, you know, a, a backup spot, a backup road, a backup canyon to, to go run into if somebody else is in your spot or for some reason your plans don't, you know, pan out like, like you thought they would in your head. Yeah. And, and you don't have to go very far on the, on the, in the coast range over here to get into an area where there may be other elk that didn't hear you, uh, you know, because it, it is so dense and the sound doesn't travel over here. You could have elk a drainage over, uh, and which isn't that far over here, and they wouldn't have even heard you. So, I, I think you're right. Moving moving to a different area, if you've got got a bunch of guys in in an area, or you've got elk that just simply just stand there and bugle back at you, but never ever commit to coming in and and you know wanting to fight, then you have to make that decision early on to move on. And that that is a that's a mistake that I've made. And it's a mistake that I continue to make, especially if there's a bull in there that kind of, you know, entices me to stick around it longer and, and try harder. Yep.
O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way that they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. Next mistake, and this comes from me being very lazy, um, you know, a little bit of being a rifle hunter that if I did, you know, early on scare something that I was just going to shoot the elk anyways, um, trying to cheat the wind. And I'm going to put you on the spot here. I don't know if there's a, a right or a wrong answer. Um, in your opinion, how far do you have to be away from an elk for them not to smell you? And I know there's lots of different situations, but um, in your opinion, like if you're going to make a circle around the elk, you know, the wind's the winds at your back, uh, how far, how big of a circle are you making, Tony? Uh, I, you know, I, I don't know what the right answer is, Jason, but I, I mean, I, I make a, a, as big a circle as I can and, and still be able to, to make contact with them, you know, so, so, so I can still hear them. Uh, you know, the, the, the wind, uh, especially over here, doesn't seem to, you know, blow in one direction very long. It, it just swirls and swirls. So I want to, I want to try to get uh, to the point where I'm, I'm in a good position in terms of wind, but, but, you know, still be able to stay within a distance so that I can hear them because they could move off if I get out too far and I wouldn't be able to know, you know, I wouldn't know that they've, they've moved on by that time. And like I said, it's so thick and dense over here. They don't have to move very far before you can't hear them. So, I mean, I, it, it's, you know, it, it, maybe even a, a couple hundred yards if I can still hear them, you know, in, in a situation. If you're along a creek or something like that, it'd be closer because it's just, um, you know, you, you, you wouldn't be able to hear them. Now, if I am in a creek or if I'm in a position where I'm, you know, I can get to a creek and I can work my way up that creek, I think, you know, what I've noticed is that <clears throat> those creeks, seem to push that wind kind of in your favor if you're walking up up the creek so it, sometimes it just depends on on where you're at in relation to the elk too 
Yep. And and I, I always I've always just kind of thought three to four hundred yards was kind of I wanted to make a circle at least that big. And a lot of it depends on, you know, if it's going down into a creek or if it's all on the same plane or the, the same hillside. Um, but now and I, I I don't hunt the coast ranges as you know much at all anymore. I have it in the past, but I think a lot of that comes from hunting the coast ranges that you you can't hear as well, so you're a little bit more reluctant to just take off and get at, you know without it outside of earshot from these elk. Um, and then I'm a very impatient hunter, and so one of the things that I always going through my head is I know that that elk was just right there, you know, at that at that point in time. But if it takes me 20 or 30 minutes because I've now got to back up over a ridge, you know, go down the backside and come back over, <laughs> I, I just, I wait, you know, I'm always weighing that risk on how long is that going to take versus the risk of me getting winded before it ever gets started. Um, you know, the, the more patient me as I get older, I'm starting to, you know, to hike back up the ridge and, and make bigger circles. And, um, you know, and it depends on the time of day and where the elk are going and what their plans are and how fast they're moving. You know, all of that's going to, to kind of tie in, um, to, to just how direct of approach and how risky I'm going to be with, with the wind. But, um, yeah. that's one thing I made a whole bunch of mistakes on is because I was lazy. Oh, I think I can just go through here. And then, you know, the next thing you hear is a stampede of elk running in the opposite direction. Um, so now, nowadays I try not to ever cheat the wind if at all possible, or have a very, very high, uh, you know, I've got a high certainty that I will not get winded. Um, you know, and so that usually involves a 500 yard circle if, if possible. Yeah. And, and that's a good point, Jason, because I, you know, I'm so used to hunting the coast range that, you know, when you do get over in, you know, on the East side where it's, it's more open, maybe not quite as thick and you can see further, uh, I think that does give you the ability to increase the distance and still keep tabs on where they're at. So I, I think you're right. I mean, if if you can, you know, three, four hundred, five hundred yards or something like that, to to give you that buffer is good. And sometimes the terrain's going to dictate that, right? I mean, if you're yep. if you're in broken up if you're in broken up terrain, um, and it and it's relatively close, it's easy to get over those ridges and kind of get around on the backside of it and move around and, and maybe get, get in closer undetected. Yep. And, and that kind of goes into our next point. Um, our next mistake that I used to make a lot is once again, cheating being seen, you know, I, I've always put the elk senses, you know, their nose is number one, you know, not even a close race, but number two is their sight. Um, they're pretty good at seeing, they can hear pretty good, but I, you know, there's natural sounds out there, natural animals. So number two is I used to always you know, or, or kind of piggybacks on trying to cheat the wind is trying to cheat their eyesight. Um, I would make an approach, or as we just mentioned, if we're over east where the vegetation is in this thick where me and you grew up hunting or you still do hunt a lot, um, I always try to avoid, you know, being seen by the elk um, or even, you know, unless we're a long ways away or I've got, once again, got confidence in it because I've found that every, you know, all the decisions I was making when I used to think the elk wouldn't see me or I'm far enough away that the elk wouldn't care, we would get picked off and then it'd be impossible. They might not bug you off like when um, they wind you, but it would be very, very tough to call those elk in to the point where um, nowadays I just don't want to be seen by the elk. I want to surprise them. I want to do the shock and awe, you know, whether it's calling or whether it's being <laughs> seen. Um, I just, I want to avoid being seen by elk, which, you know, once again, on the west side, coastal stuff, it's easy because you got brush and vegetation and timber and jackfurs everywhere yeah. versus east side. It's a little tougher. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I, <clears throat> in fact, I started, I started carrying a decoy for that reason when I'm in open terrain. Uh, but, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've, I, I, again, I think, you know, not, not every elk is the same. Not every situation is the same. I've called in, I've called in bulls before that, that saw me or saw something at least, and maybe they didn't make out enough of, of me to, to really, you know, give them pause, but you know, they, they kind of run off a ways, like you say, and you can call them back in. But, but, you know, I, I think for the most part, you know, like you said, if, if they win you, the game's over. Uh, if they see you, they're going to be a lot more cautious, if anything else, even, even if they do kind of still hang out there, they're going to be a lot more cautious because they saw something that wasn't quite right in their mind 
and they're going to be very careful in terms of, of you know, what, what the, how close they get to whatever that perceived threat might be. For sure. Um, next is maybe, you know, I get to go to a lot of sportsman shows, get to talk to a lot of hunters, get a lot of emails. Um, I feel that m- more mistakes may be made while setting up um, for that call in than, than anywhere else in an archery elk hunters, um, you know, in the process of trying to kill an elk. Uh, you know, the, here's kind of the atypical story is, you know, I had this bull fired up. I went and set up. And they're showing me a video on their phone as, as we're going through this whole storytelling. And what you'll end up seeing is a bull that hangs up at like 70 or 80 yards and won't commit. And, and you'll see a flash and, or maybe the bull will stay there for a little bit. And then the bull loses interest and turns away. Maybe bugles a little bit before he goes off. Kind of one last come show yourself. He'll turn away and leave. Um, it kind of piggybacks on what we said earlier is we're trying to reverse nature. And when that elk gets to the point where he should see you, um, you better be within shooting range. Um, so when setting up, I feel that you need to set up either on vegetation breaks because a lot of times they will go from, you know, thick cover if they're coming out of their bedding or, you know, thinner cover if they're going from food to, to bedding. Um, I like to set up within 40 yards of either side of that. And because what that gives me is when they get to that change in vegetation, uh, we're going to have a shot. And then the same thing with terrain, if I want to be within 40 yards of that terrain break, so when that bull can finally get his eyes up to a point where he should be able to see the cow or the bull calling to him, I want to be able to, uh, you know, shoot at that time because 99% of the time that bull is going to hold up at that exact location. Like I could almost draw an X on the map, like that thing's going to hold up here. Um, So that's one of the tips I have, you know, when going to set up, you know, use the terrain and use that vegetation to your advantage because there were a lot of times, um, you know, especially like setting up on meadows. When I started hunting the high country stuff, I thought the best thing ever was to set up right on the edge of a meadow, <laughs> you know, be it, be in the timber, have a wide open meadow out in front of me because guess what? There's no brush in my way. Yeah. There's no sticks that are going to deflect. And guess what? I very, I think one time in my life so far have got a bull to run wide open through a meadow and actually get to the other side where we could have ever shot it. Yeah, no, I, I've experienced the same thing and I've done the same thing uh, numerous times. I, I mean, this kind of going back to what you said earlier, kind of when you, when we started talking here, Jason, it, um, you know, it, 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 we didn't have the same kind of resources that, that are available now. And, and I didn't have anybody that really taught me anything about archery hunting. It was all by trial and error. So, so not only did I set up on the edge of, of clearings thinking that I was going to call a, a bull in across a, an open meadow, but, you know, I would, I would set up, you know, going back a long time now, I, I didn't want that elk to see me. So I'd actually set up behind a, a bush or a tree or something like that. And thinking that that, that elk was going to maybe walk past me and I was going to get a shot. Well, I mean, that, that just doesn't happen. Right. I mean, trust your camo, get in front of, Get, get in front of the, the tree or the brush or something like so you've got open lanes. And for me over here on the coast, it's because it is so thick, it is more about terrain. Uh, you know, I've, I've called, you know, I've set up in the wrong place many times and you, you call a bull in and they come up over this little rise and they get up there just far enough to where they can peek over that, that little riser and look and see, and you've got no shot at all. So, you know, you're exactly right. Getting up there, uh, where where you're going to have a, a, an open shot, not only not only with you know sh- open shooting lanes, at least on the coast range, but having having an opportunity to be in an area where that bull isn't going to hold up. You know, do do some calling and and get up there a ways so that that bull doesn't you know pinpoint your location and and that way you've got an opportunity there. Yeah, I, I can still remember the very first year I ever archery hunted and you were talking a little bit about setting up in the brush. I was super inexperienced and I thought, hey, the best place to be is to jump in this pile of brush. I you know, For some reason, I remember there being some blackberry briars, you know, just finishing out. And it was just a tangled mess that we have here on the coastal, you know, yeah. um, vegetation. And you know, the, the last thing you think about is that you're going to have 
you know, whatever it is, 25 inches of arrow hanging out the front of your bow that you can't move. And, and you can be as careful as you want, but that dang arrow was like getting wrapped up and then the broadhead gets hung up on something <laughs> and you can't move. So if you need to move, because unless I just happen to, to, to be pointing in the right direction, like you've got to figure out how to draw the bow. You got to figure out how to get it pointed in the right direction. And, uh, yeah, from then on, like, I don't even similar to that. I don't even set up on my knees anymore. Like I am, I am on my feet at all times. Um, you know, the, I, I will set up on my knees if, if for some reason there's like a level of brush that, you know, if we're in big timber where the brush lines, like at three or four feet and I don't want to shoot through it and I want to shoot under it. Um, but for the majority of the time, I'd say I'm setting up on my feet, being fairly mobile in front of the brush or, in, you know, alongside of a big tree is typically my favorite setup, you know, either behind me or to my direction that gives me a little bit of coverage. Um, and, and yeah, so that was, yeah, I learned the hard way on multiple bulls that first season of do not set up in the brush because you they pick you off trying to move or get a shot. Yeah, for sure. And 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 you mentioned, you know, setting up on your knees. I used to do that too because it was comfortable. You know, I, I could get down there and I could stay that stay in that position for a long time. But, you know, those bulls will come in from various directions. And and just because you're calling to a bull and you know where that bull's at doesn't mean a bull's gonna not gonna come in silent from a different direction. So you have to be mobile. You have to be able to turn. You have to get that that you know whatever that brush is or you know sticks or twigs or whatever that's on the ground, get it cleaned out so that when you do have to move or you do have to stand up if you're knelt down, that you're not making any noise when you do stand up and and breaking those branches off when you get into position when you've got shooting lanes. You know, I, I I was chuckling earlier because you, you mentioned something about your arrow getting hung up in the brush. I can't tell you how many times I've done that, just not paying attention, and that broadhead catches something, and it just it'll either pull it off the string, or it just clanks up against a riser or something, and and then you know your your hunt's over because I heard it. Yep, yep, and um, you know that that brings you, but you don't know where the elk's coming from. Um, I like to you know, visualize all my shooting lanes. Like if an elk is to come in here and he goes left to right, right to left, straight at me, like where are my shooting lanes? And then one thing I, I like to always, you know, explain to people is, and you know, it may only be one or two times because you're going to figure it out, but I learned the hard way is a right-handed shooter. I can turn, you know, we can all sit here, listen to this podcast. You can turn over your left shoulder and, and I can turn 180 degrees, you know, almost to my left and I could get a, a decent shot off that direction. But if you ask me to turn about 20 degrees to my right and open <laughs> yeah. up, you know, clockwise, yeah. I can't shoot anything over there. So I learned really quick that I'm going to put like my left shoulder, if not even shade my back to where I think that bowl is going to come from. Yeah. And then that gives me the widest ability to shoot. And it's just little things where, you know, I don't have to move my feet that way. I don't have to like change my stance. Um, you know, some of those things on shooting lanes and then, you know, pick out multiple ones. I always recommend take the time before you, there are situations where elk are coming fast and they're not giving you a lot of time, but always try to range, you know, three or four trees, not a bunch of them. Um, I try to get a 20, 30, 40, and then try to draw some circles and some zones out in front of me. But, you know, take the time, figure out your shooting lanes, what your distances are going to be, and then kind of, you know, settle in there. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's, that's good tip right there. And then the biggest mistake I feel we we've talked about it up, up top on some of you know calling the herd bulls in. Uh, we've we've did this enough. We've I'm sure you've called a bull in from a half mile away. But the if you were to start you know, if you were a betting guy, I'm going to bet that you would want to get as close as possible before you started calling or tried to call a bull in every time. Um, and that's that's my biggest thing when people go to set up is they don't get close enough. Um, as much as I'd like to tell people I call bulls in from miles away and, you know, blah, 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 whatever it might be, the, the fact is, if I can get within 100 yards, I think I'm two times as likely to call a bull in from 100 yards as I am from 200. And, you know, four times as likely to call it in from 200 as I am from 300. You know, it's, it's exponential the closer you get. And, you know, I've always joked joked about getting a t-shirt made like short distance elk caller because <laughs> we do a lot of you know we cover a lot of the ground with our feet and only use those calls to do you know to manipulate those elk and get them to, to travel very very you know short distances hopefully yeah no i i 100 agree i you know i i hear it every year it's either it's either guys will set up and you know in, in the brush somewhere and they're they're calling and that bull is calling back at them but but they never close the distance 
that bull will stand out there, you know, a hundred yards or more and just bugle back and forth at you. If, if all you want to do is just bugle, he, he, he's happy to do that. Or tree stand hunters. I There's this one area that we hunted uh, over in Eastern Oregon where this guy sets up at a tree stand. He'll sit up there and bugle his brains out. And those bulls are bugling all the way around him. And they just stay out there. He never gets down out of his tree stand to, to try to close the distance on him. And like I said, those bulls, if you if if you if you're not perceived as just some kind of a threat, they'll just they'll just stand there and, and bugle at you. I mean, why would they why would they want to come closer if you're no threat? Yep. It's you know, I've always told people that if you don't become the threat, you're literally just saying, Hey, I'm over here, and then he's saying, Hey, I'm over there. You know, and then you guys are literally we are just part of the game where it's just letting everybody know where we're yeah, at. That's that's what it they is, do is every day. <laughs> yep. Um, the next one, which I feel is definitely a coastal thing, you know, thick vegetation, thick timber, lots of brush, no real openings unless you're above a clear cut or, you know, on a road system is calling too small. Um, let me give me a little bit on kind of what your thought is, you know, volume wise and, and, you know, how you call to, to elk out in the woods. Yeah. So, so usually, you know, first thing in the morning when I'm out, you know, hiking in the dark, uh, you know, bulls, at least around here, seem to be way more vocal uh, in the dark because they, they feel safer. So, you know, I'll go out and, and throw out a locate bugle. And, you know, if I get something to respond, then I'll work my, my way that direction until the sun comes up, you know, where you can see and you can see your pins. And if, if he did come in, you could actually have a, have a good shot opportunity there. Um, but you know, it, as thick as this stuff is, and it, and you have to get close to them to be perceived as that threat. And the closer I get, I mean, I will start out mimicking them. And if that works great, you know, and I've had that work a number of times where you mimic that bull and, and they don't like it and they come in, but if they don't, then you're the one that has to make the move. Otherwise you're just going to stand out there and, and, and you kind of get in that game back and forth. But, um, you know, I, I go in as close as I can and I'll rip off a challenge bugle. I'll throw a lit ball in there, uh, you know, big, you know, grunts and chuckles and just as loud as I can and, and just start stomping on the ground and tearing up brush. And, and I mean, that's, that's my strategy. And I mean, it does work. They do come in closer but you know, a lot of times over here we don't have all that that greatest shooting lanes. But but I, I found that if 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 you get in their face and and you get more volume out of that tube and and that call, that oftentimes is what kind of triggers that that reaction or that response for them to to finally say I've had enough and I'm coming in and we're gonna fight. Yep. And and I got a couple examples. So one reason when I'm locating, I want to call big is my purpose for letting those locator bugles, as we just said, is it's a game of, hey, I'm over here. And then you hopefully an elk, you know, waves across you at the canyon, like, hey, I'm over here. You know, I'm just, I want yeah. that bugle to reach as many elk in that canyon as possible. You know, people can call me lazy or whatever, but I've already put the time in to walk that ridge or walk that trail system or bike in a certain road. I might as well let my bugle cover as absolute much, you know, ground as possible. I don't feel in you know, you can overlocate, um, you know, if they're there, they'll answer you. If not, then you'll keep driving by or if they heard you and didn't answer, then it is what it is. We didn't necessarily, you know, educate them because they didn't smell us. They didn't see us. Um, you know, now, now driving up and, and, and calling is a different thing. I think that can educate Oak, but so we're, we're calling as big as possible. And then the other thing is, is, you know, similar to you, I'm fortunate to get to hunt with some great callers and what I would consider some very loud callers at the very high end. Um, yeah. you know, we don't set up the caller too far back. He's usually, you know, 20, 25, maybe 30 yards max, but I've got callers, you know, if I'm shooting and not doing any calling, um, uh, that are cranking on bugles as big as they can be. And, and it's not that loud compared to the real elk that's coming in. You know, that, that elk can rip off, <laughs> you know, a bugle at 50 yards. And my buddy who I thought was a loud caller doesn't sound half of, you know, half is that big, half the yeah. volume. And so when you're out there in the woods, no matter how loud you think you are, you're just not competing with the real thing. You know, you don't got the lung capacity of a 900 pound animal or 800 no. pound animal. Um, and so in my opinion, we call big, 
um, for locating to reach as much ground. And then when we're calling elk, we call big so that they, you know, once again, we're trying to be a threat and, and we want to be as big and nasty as we can. And, and I think we still fall short the majority of the time. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, you're exactly right. Our, our lung capacity and our diaphragm just cannot make the same sounds or produce the same volume that a bull can. So I personally don't think that you can be too loud. I go through, <laughs> I go through a lot of diaphragms each season because number one, I bugle a lot. And secondly, when I do, I bugle hard and loud. So there's a lot of volume going through there. I try to hit those high ringing notes that, that just, you know, pierce your ear. And I want them to know that, that I'm number one, I'm here. Number two, I'm, I'm close and I'm about to get in your face and we're about to have a fight. And, and that's, that's the goal, right? I mean, you're not out there playing patty cake with these bulls. You want to, again, be perceived as that threat, get in their face, get as loud and mean and nasty as you want to, or that you can. And, and that's, that's the goal. Yep. And we're on to, you know, in my opinion, the biggest mistake I made, which we, I understand, um, you know, not everybody has unlimited time or can be out there every day is I didn't put enough time in, um, you know, and I'm going to say this is, is, uh, it's not a mistake necessarily, but it's one of the things that I've been able to attribute to success and continued success is I spend a lot of time out there and, and for a guy that's supposed to know what he's doing, um, there are times where I can do everything that I think's right and still screw up day after day after day. And so the only thing that's working on my side is the, you know, the additional time that, that I get to go again tomorrow or the following day. Um, so, you know, if, if you, you know, I was there, I was a weekend warrior for a long time or a three day weekend guy, you know, was all I could pull off. And then, um, you know, started to be able to get a week to do it. And, and I found the, you know, the more time I could put towards it, obviously the, the more success I found. Um, but that's kind of that last thing is, is, you know, if you don't have time, um, it just, everything becomes tougher. You know, the situations have to work out, you know, better. And, and, um, yeah, you know, as you said, Tony, you're, you're, you know, taking two weeks off hunting all the weekends, you know, nights after work. Um, I think one thing that people don't realize is, you know, people that are finding success year in and year out, like, any free time is being dedicated to trying to fill these tags because no matter how good you are, um, nothing's a guarantee when it comes to elk hunting. No, and you're right. And it's just like, it's like a lot of things in life, you know, Jason, if the, the, the more often you're out in the woods, that just increases your odds of, of even incidental encounters, you know, just happen to be set up in an area, just, you know, glassing or watching and a bull walks out in front of you. You know, I mean, that that's luck, I think. doesn't happen to me very often. But uh, just the fact that you're out there increases your chances of being successful. And it doesn't matter how good of a hunter you are or how much time you've put in and dedicated to this sport. Or the, you, you can't outthink an elk. You can't second guess them. You're going to make the same mistakes year in and year out. And, and just being persistent not giving up, you know, going that extra mile when you think, you know, I'm I'm done. I'm just, I'm frustrated. I can't do this anymore. You know, push through it and and just keep trying because the only way you're going to be able to be successful is to be out there and, and continue, you know, striving for what you love to do. Yep. And, you know, I I guess that would be my advice. Um, You know, you can't necessarily control how much vacation time or, or what you get, but, you know, we, we have guys around home that, or, you know, what I would consider weekend warriors, but I'll see them, you know, come in at nine o'clock in the morning and then they go back out at four at night. Like there are elk yeah. to be killed between nine and four, like give it your all, you know, spend time, um, you know, figure out how to hunt in the middle of the day, like maximize your time out in the field. And uh, I think you're going to find a lot more success. In closing, Tony, if you had to give one golden nugget to elk hunters out there um, to make them more successful, what would it be? You know, for, for me, Jason, it kind of gets back to what I was just saying. Um, you know, I, I'm fortunate enough to live in an area where, you know, I, I as soon as I get home from work, I can be in the woods in, in 15 minutes. Um, so spending as much time as you can uh you know, perseverance will get you there. You know, uh, picking up some calls, 
And, and even if, even in the off season, just keep practicing, keep practicing and, and become more versatile with those calls so that when you're out there in the woods and, and you're trying to mimic those bulls, that you have more calls at your disposal, more tools in the toolbox, so to speak, so that when the, when the opportunity arises, you can capitalize on that. That's a, that's a great tip, Tony. I really appreciate having you on. Um, good luck this fall and, uh, yeah, congrats, congrats again on, on the standings there at the world out calling championships, uh, another great showing by you and just kind of goes to show that you, uh, you're pretty dang good. Well, I appreciate that Jason very much and, and good luck to you. And, and, uh, hopefully we can do this again sometime. Yep. Yep. Thanks a lot. Good luck, Tony. And, uh, we'll catch up later. All right. Thanks, Jason. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins.